The time is now. Volume 4, Episode 57. This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, your host of this podcast. And here we are with Part 2 of a two-part series addressing all of the significant coronavirus developments that are going on. And you like to say they're changing daily, but really they seem to be changing hourly. Just yesterday, I released part one of this two-part series where I talked about the very broad new legislation that was passed by the U.S. House of Representatives in the early morning hours of March 14th, 2020. Well, since then, and again, talking about how things are just changing and developing uh, every hour, uh, there have been some technical maneuverings over that House legislation as well as some slight rumblings that there are going to be some maybe slight tweaks to the bill that was passed by the House of Representatives and handed over to the U.S. Senate. We still believe that this legislation is going to be passed by the U.S. Senate in virtually its current form and then ultimately signed by President Trump. We still do believe and are still hopeful that all of this will happen this week. But again, uh, lots of things are up in the air and uh, we'll see what happens. But that's really the update on that legislation uh, at the moment. And we will continue to keep you updated on this podcast and in our various media and uh, alert outlets at Cozen O'Connor. But for today's part two of this two-part series, I wanted to rebroadcast the terrific webinar that several people from my firm presented last Friday, March 13th, 2020. For those of you who missed it, it was a really um, broad discussion about the current status of the coronavirus, measures to try to address the coronavirus from government agencies and otherwise, what places like OSHA are doing, what some of the Americans with Disabilities Act impacts are, such as requiring employees to get tested, to stay away from work, to have their temperature taken, to other frequently asked questions that we addressed during this webinar on March 13th. And for those who missed that webinar, I wanted to at least provide a rebroadcast of that audio here on this podcast today. It was a long webinar um, by its very nature. There were so many issues that we wanted to tackle. It's about 90 minutes, which is obviously a lot longer than my regular podcast episodes are. But rather than try to edit it and spend days taking various clips and cutting and pasting, Uh, I wanted to give you the whole uh, audio component of that webinar. You can fast forward, rewind, pause, come back to it whenever you'd like, but at least I wanted to give you the opportunity to hear it in its entirety if that's what you wanted to do. So here we are, coronavirus and the workplace from Cozen O'Connor, an audio component of the webinar presented on March 13th, 2020.
coronavirus outbreak in the workplace, presented by Cozen O'Connor. We greatly appreciate so many of you signing up for today's webinar, given how hectic our professional and personal lives seem to be these days. Hopefully you will find the discussion today uh, not only up to date, but useful. Uh, my name is Michael Schmidt. I'm the Vice Chair of Cozen O'Connor's Labor and Employment Department. Before we begin and I introduce uh, the speakers for today, I have a few housekeeping items that I wanted to review with you. First, all participants in the webinar are in listen-only mode. That means that you can hear the speakers, but no one is able to hear you. So if you do speak into your headset or phone and we're not responding, don't think we're ignoring you. If you have any technical issues on your end, please send a chat message via the chat pod on the left-hand side of your screen. There are several handouts that are available for you to download at your convenience. They can be found on the left-hand side of your screen titled Event Resources. Uh, there you will find the speaker bios, SHRM certificate, HRCI certificate, as well as the slides for today's presentation. Of course, please allow some time, probably up to two weeks, to receive the certificate of attendance. And at the conclusion of today's webinar, please complete the evaluation. Lastly, if you have any questions at any time during the webinar, type your question by using the Q&A chat pod and they will be answered as time allows. We will do our best to, we have a lot of information to get to you today. Uh, we anticipate a good amount of questions. We will try to get to them uh, as we can in real time. Otherwise, we will try to spend a few minutes at the end of the uh, webinar to go through some questions, again, as time allows. Joining me today to lead this discussion are my colleagues David Barron and John Ho, both of uh, Cozen O'Connor's Labor and Employment Department. We also have other members of our firm here to assist with questions that may come up as well as to join us on different parts of the presentation. Uh, just by way of brief introduction, Michelle Miller is the chair of our West Coast Labor and Employment based out in California. Lynn Brem is a member of our department practicing in our Employee Benefits and Executive Compensation Group. Scott Betridge is the chair of our immigration practice. And Howard Schweitzer is the CEO of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies. Howard was also the chief operating officer at the United States Treasury during the 2008-2009 financial crisis. So again, we welcome you. Thank you for spending some time this afternoon with us, and uh, we'll begin now. Thanks, Mike. Um, you know, it seems like um, two weeks ago when we decided to put this on that the world was a, a different place and the news is really just sped up in terms of the, the pace at which things are changing. Um, you know, right now we're dealing with a situation where um, we have a pandemic has been declared by the World Health Organization. Um, we've had in the last, you know, 48 hours, we've seen closures of um, Europe in terms of international travel to the United States. We've seen celebrities now and, and even politicians being testing positive for um, COVID-19 or or the coronavirus. So I just want to just talk real briefly about the situation. I know many of you are, are very up to speed on this, but there may be some who are not, and obviously we're not doctors. But effectively, what we're dealing with is a novel coronavirus, and I think that's really important to emphasize the novel piece of that. So this is a, a virus that human beings have never seen before. So the normal uh, situation involving something like the flu where you have a vaccine or you know some folks who have already had it so they have a natural immunity to it, that's just not the case. So you know, the best uh, example of that that I've seen in the last week or two 
was a conference in Boston where one individual um, had coronavirus, went to that um, CLE or that conference, and over 50 people were infected. So you can imagine what that would do to a workplace. So you know that's the situation that we're dealing with. You're going to see a lot in the news media about flattening the curve. And uh, if, if you want, you know, some sense of optimism, I don't want to make this all doom and gloom, but um, you know, imagine a wave that's moving across the, the world, and we're probably on the later stages of that. So you can see what's happened in other countries, and and that's you know headed in our direction. So there will be a peak, and then it will end um, and go down. And you know, all of the things that have happened very quickly in the last 48 hours or this week are really aimed at trying to lessen the intensity of that peak um, and lessen the time of that peak. So again, employers have a role to play in that. And obviously those steps, you know, school closures and those types of things are going to greatly impact um, employers. So, uh, you know, moving to the next slide, th this was the World Health Organization's summary of the situation from uh, now it's about a week ago, and this is where I really started paying attention, where you see something from you know, the World Health Organization that says this is not a drill. Uh, this is something that you know, should be taken very seriously. And I think after that and then the declaration of the pandemic, we've seen um, really a very fast-paced acceleration of, of, of what's happened. So we're going to focus on today a couple of different aspects of this. We're going to talk, obviously, about the employment law. Um, issues. We're going to talk also about the, some of the practical things, the best practices, the the planning that employers are going through right now. Um, we're, John Ho, uh, my, my co-presenter, is going to talk in, in, in some detail about OSHA because obviously employers want to keep their employees safe, and that's that's of sort of you know the utmost importance here, especially for like the healthcare industry and some other industries where there's just inevitable you know close contact with customers and and, and those types of things. Um, we're going to talk briefly about you know the potential impact on the economy and what that might mean for employers. We're already seeing that in places like Seattle. Um, where there's you know significant impacts, um, you know in my home of Houston we have the double whammy of uh, coronavirus and the the impact on the oil market. So unfortunately, I think we may be entering hopefully a very temporary uh, situation where we need to dust off you know our our knowledge and, and really you know make sure we're up to speed on some of the legal implications of, of laying off folks, changing hours, changing pay temporarily, and those types of things. And then lastly, we'll talk about you know, trying to look ahead. And I know that's very difficult in, in this very fluid situation, but you know, what are the things on the horizon that we should you know, really be looking for uh, and planning for next? So I wanted to start with outlining some really helpful government resources for businesses. Um, there, there are some very good guidelines from the EEOC that are not specific to COVID-19, but were, you know, I think at this point about 10 years old, dealing mainly with SARS and some other outbreaks. But they're really helpful because it, it, it provides a lot of the guidance for how to handle these types of situations in terms of dealing with employees who may be sick. Um, a lot of the information that we're going to be presenting today, it comes from that that guideline from the EEOC and these other guidelines as well. Um, OSHA, and I know John's going to talk about uh, what OSHA is doing and what it's putting out. There's a very good. This is a this is an actual recent publication dealing specifically with coronavirus and uh, you know specific obligations under under OSHA laws. The CDC has a very good uh, guidance for business um, that I would refer everybody to. Um, I, I will also say, and there'll be some mentions of that on the call today or the webinar today, that the CDC is also putting out uh, local 
guidance for certain areas. So you, you will see that, for example, in Seattle and New Rochelle up in New York, there are specific guidelines for schools, businesses, individuals, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. Um, and we'll talk about some of the details. And, and those are very helpful and should be referred to. So um, big picture planning, that's where we're going to start. So at the C-suite, um, what are the things um, that we should be looking at in terms of steps to be taking now? So uh, first, again, and foremost, um, work-related exposure and health risks to employees. Healthcare workers are on the front lines. It's really important um, for companies to identify any particular parts of their workforce where there may be uh, serious safety issues that need to be addressed, either through personal protective equipment or other measures. And again, we're going to go into details in these. Um, telecommuting and flexible hours. Again, we've seen a lot of that already taking place. What are the things that employers can do um, or should be doing in terms of creating that distance between employees and other members of the public, uh, decreasing the concentrations of employees in a specific location, trying to spread people out? Uh, if, you, you know, if you look at the map right now, Idaho is a really safe place to be, right? Everybody probably can't move their staff temporarily to Idaho, but there may be things that you can do to, uh, to minimize your exposure. Number three, identifying essential functions and planning for staffing, right? So um, every indication is that we're going to see increased absenteeism, prolonged absenteeism. What does that mean for your business? Trying to identify where your essential functions are and plan for those functions to be interrupted. I was talking to a client the other day, and they had you know, a team of very critical people in their business, and what they're doing is they're splitting that team up because what they, what they don't want is to have one person in that team that gets sick and for the whole team to be quarantined at home. So they're creating you know, team one, team two, and having them work separate shifts or out of separate locations so that you know, they can make sure that at any given time they don't lose that entire piece of their business. So those are the types of things that companies are doing and, and really should be doing. Set up a response plan, right? Um, this is going to be very geographically focused. Um, you know, we're seeing that right now with Seattle and New York and other hotspots. So monitoring that closely, trying to move and transfer employees to the extent that's possible. Travel is, is difficult right now, but, but focusing on you know, where do we need to be uh, worried about, where do we need to be uh, perhaps taking different measures. This is probably not a situation where you want to be taking the same measures everywhere. Um, you know, there may be you know, areas that are harder hit than others, and you may be doing different things in different parts of your operations or, or, or the country. You want to have a process for communicating with employees. And again, many companies already have that. I know our firm has that. Um, you want to really make sure you have that, that situation under control and very well communicated to employees how they're going to get information. Um, again, things can change very rapidly. Just simple things like make sure you're taking your laptop home every day because you know, we don't know if our office is going to be open tomorrow. Because again, if you're in a commercial office building, if there's a problem in that office, you, know, you may not even be able to get back um, into your office. Uh, lo looking at options for employees who have children where schools are closed, which right now is, seems to be just about everywhere. Um, there are a number of states um, where there are protections for employees um, who have to stay home because of a situation like this. Not every state has that protection, and there's no federal protection for that. But for example, California and New York do have 
laws which would allow employees to, to stay home to take care of children in a situation like this. So it's important to, to, to be cognizant of that. And again, uh, we've seen a lot of companies implement restrictions on employee business travel, um, access to employer facilities, basically on, on a you know essential basis only. Right? This is not the time to be taking clients to lunch and you know, going into other facilities where there's really no good reason to be there, looking hard at who needs to be coming onto our property, who needs to be entering our facilities. You know, people should not be bringing their spouses to work, visiting uh, visitors, all of those things that are not essential. You know, now would be a really good time to, to cut those things out. So to drill it, Mike, did you have something to add? Um, to, to drill, okay, to drill that down a little further, some of the specific steps employers should be doing, and we're going to go through all of these in, in, in detail. So one question that comes up is, you know, employees who have traveled to affected areas. So, you know, originally that was China, and then that list has really, you know, expanded since the early days of that, of the situation. So, um, you know, yes, em employers should be um, requiring and communicating with employees um, about where they're going, um, and if they're going into a hot spot or a place where there's a risk of that employee being uh, exposed, then moving that employee into a self-quarantine situation. So um, again, we'll go into a little more detail of that, but that's, that's many employers are doing that. I think that's a great idea. It is absolutely lawful, and, and it's a very prudent thing to do. Uh, developing a plan for handling paid sick leave. We're going to talk in a lot of detail today about that. There's a bill. Uh, Howard is uh, head of our public strategy section, and, and they do a great job of monitoring those, the, the, the current situation in Congress generally, but they're, they've really been on top of what's going on with this particular piece of legislation. And uh, he's going to add his input and, and thoughts on kind of where that's all going to end up. But, but that's a big issue that employers are wrestling with right now of, you know, we, employees might not want to tell their employer if they're sick because they need to come to work and get paid. So how do we incentivize that uh, in a way that keeps everybody safe? Um, and then obviously encouraging people to stay home and keep out of the workforce. Um, you know, who's going to enforce that? Is it going to be managers on a case-by-case -case basis? Are we going to be doing temperature checks? Again, we're going to talk about that today. Social distancing in the workplace, sort of the continuation of what you see governments and schools and, and other organizations doing, how do we do that in our workplace, and then also hygiene and, and environmental cleaning, which is critical as well, uh, and we're going to talk about all of these things. So let's talk about self-reporting first. So this is a, this is a very uh, important topic, and what should be on that list? So uh, again, it, it, the list started relatively small. Um, you know, it's, it started with basically China and Southeast Asia. And, and we've seen CDC travel advisories put into place. And those advisories have, you know, unfortunately expanded um, over the last, you know, month or, or two months. So, you know, right now, obviously, we just have, we just had implemented, I think it's actually tonight, um, the, the ban on um, travel from and to Europe, other than I think U.S. citizens are exempted from that and the United Kingdom is exempted from that. So, um, you know, that's what the government is doing. Companies obviously have a right to implement their own uh, policies on not only, you know, their employees traveling for business purposes, but notice to the company about what an employee is doing, um, you know, outside of work. And we're going to talk about whether you can actually restrict an employee from, from, from traveling, but you can certainly require that they tell you 
um, and provide some sort of notice to you if they have been somewhere where it's a hot spot or if they're planning to go somewhere. And again, I, I would advise at this point, uh, uh, that list is very rapidly evolving. Um, you know, in the United States, I would say obviously Seattle, New York, California, Florida would, would be on that list. But again, at this point, it's going to be very hard to, you know, to, to have something that's going to be good for any extended period of time. That list could change from day to day. I think cruises would be on that list. I've got, you know, uh, an inordinate amount of questions from, from clients in the last week or two about what do I do with, you know, employees that are on a cruise to the Bahamas. I'm, I'm in Texas. Again, it's a Gulf state. I know I have a colleague from Florida on the line. And, uh, you know, the reality is, is that you have employees that up until, you know, last week um, were, were, were taking cruises and some of them just getting back from cruises. So I think that needs to be on the list of potential self-reporting and potential self-quarantining uh, policies with respect to that. Um, and then the, the next question is, do you take it further than just the employee? Because the reality is, is obviously if that person's spouse or someone that they're living with has engaged in the same type of activity, then in reality that, that employee is also um, going to be exposed to whatever they were exposed to. So I think it makes sense to, in that policy directive to employees, include not only the employee taking a cruise or traveling to Seattle or Southeast Asia or at this point Europe, um, but to say if, you're, if you have a family or a household member who has done any of these same activities, let us know so that we can you know, take the appropriate action. Um, another aspect of this self-reporting um, would be reporting of an actual illness. So obviously a diagnosis of COVID-19 or coronavirus, um, something that should be um, you know, reported to the employer. Um, Taking that again a step further would be exposure to someone who has been diagnosed with coronavirus. So again, if, if your spouse, I mean, we're seeing that right now with the Prime Minister of um, Canada, right? The Prime Minister's spouse, wife, was, di was diagnosed, tested positive. So he is now, in fact, going to self-quarantine for 14 days. So, so if you have an employee whose spouse has tested positive or, again, a, a member of their household, the prudent step is to also exclude that employee for, for a period of time so you can determine whether they're, they're actually going to get sick or not. Um, and then, you know, again, one question is how far do you take that, right? So clearly exposure to someone who's been diagnosed would probably be, uh, you know, reasonable. What about exposure to someone who has not necessarily been diagnosed but, it, but is self-quarantined? So spouse not diagnosed, not sick, but the spouse was exposed to somebody um, who who is sick, and now the spouse is self-quarantined, you know, so I, I think that's as far as I would recommend taking it. I mean, you can keep going with those levels and steps, you know, what, what do you do about neighbors and pastors, you know, I think those are case-by-case -case basis, but, um, you know, those are, those are things that you want to be actively monitoring. If, if a person goes to a church or some other organization where there's been a large number of cases, you know, I, I think that would be a situation that I would be looking at pretty, pretty hard uh, at this point. Um, okay. So, uh, again, the, what the best practice would be would be to require self-quarantine for at least 14 days in that situation um, and ask that employee, again, to stay out of the workplace. Paid sick leave. So this is... Um, really been a hot issue uh, in all of this. It's been a very political hot potato. So I want to talk about the bill that's currently pending 
in Congress, and, I, and then I want to have Howard kind of weigh in on the prospects or odds that uh, that that's likely to pass. So what we're what we've seen, uh, I think, as of yesterday, is a bill that's going to uh, create a new entitlement to seven days of annual sick leave with. Uh, which would be immediately available for a public health emergency, and then a 14-day emergency leave entitlement um, w- with small employers being reimbursed by the federal government. And that's been defined as 50 employees or less. There would be a new emergency leave benefit created that would be administered by the Social Security Administration, and that would be a benefit that applies to people who need to take more than 14 days off. So someone who's sick, needs to take off, you know, two months. Um, this would be basically the equivalent of some sort of short-term disability insurance plan that would be paid for, you know, through the federal government that would kick in and provide up to two-thirds of that employee's monthly wage uh, or, or $4,000 a month. A couple of other pieces of this that, again, I have no idea whether this is all going to make its way into the final bill, but it would create a new civil cause of action. So there would be a new uh, vehicle for employees to file a lawsuit if if this was violated with double damages, fees, and costs. So that's very significant. It would also amend the Family Medical Leave Act to create a, a new right to unpaid leave um, when there's a public health emergency and they need to take care of a family member or they're self-quarantined, etc. So th- th- there's some very significant uh, pieces in there that, that really need to be watched. And then I want to talk about one other thing, and then I'm going to hand it over to Howard to talk about the politics of this. But uh, I wanted people to see what the emergency leave definition looks like. So there's this creation of this emergency leave, which again would be that 14-day paid for by the employer, um, unless it's a smaller employer, in which case they would be reimbursed by the federal government. And then also, again, that, that temporary disability situation for emergency leave. But you can see... The definition of this is really broad, so it would be not only someone who's sick, but anybody that's under a self-quarantine, anybody that's caring for another person who is sick with COVID-19 or under quarantine, or caring for uh, a child who's you know, impacted by a school closure. So this is a very broad, at least the initial draft of this was, was very broad and really could, could have some pretty significant impact. So, so Howard, you, you want to talk a little bit Dave? about what the politics... Dave, before before we turn to Howard quickly, uh, just one question as we're going through the questions, and thank you to everybody who is submitting questions. We'll try to get to as many as we can between uh, now and the end of the presentation. But as it stands now, if a company is requiring an employee to self-quarantine, is the company required to pay them? Yeah, that's a good question. So as of right now, I would say no, right? I mean, but you would have to look at uh, there could be collective bargaining agreement implications with something like that. If it's if, if it's a salaried employee and that person has worked par- part of that work week, there may be an obligation to pay them for the entire work week. Um, you know, th- there could be uh, sick pay obligations under uh, state or local laws, right? That could come into play. So again, we'll talk about those a little bit later, but it's not a simple, clear-cut yes or no answer. I think you have to look at what what state, what what locality am I in? Is is there, you know, some sort of sick pay law? Is there any applicable collective bargaining agreement that might, you know, impact this analysis? Um, and then, are they exempt? Are they non-exempt? Is the person going to be working from home in any capacity, or are they just are they just 
you know, staying out of the workplace. So, so those things are all factors that could impact that question. Exactly. So, like so many other uh, issues in employment law, it's, it's about the Fed side of things, but it's also going to depend very much on uh, state law, local law, uh, that we all have to reconcile when looking at any of these questions. Howard. Yes. All right. Thank you very Politics. much. Thanks, David. Thanks, thanks Mike. Politics. So, um, as, as David and Mike mentioned, I'm, I'm in D.C., and I run our lobbying practice at the firm. Um, to bring everybody up to speed on where things are with this bill, the administration, through Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, is negotiating the bill with Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, and Richie Neal, who's the Chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, which does, does tax legislation. They're going to reach a deal today, is my expectation. Um, and something's going to be passed next week. The Senate is staying in session next week. They were supposed to be out of session. They're staying in. Um, a, bill, a bill is going to get done and signed by the president. What's going to be in it? Um, this is not an economic bailout bill. This is going to be safety net programs like food aid and unemployment insurance emergency sick leave and, and public health, free testing for coronavirus for people who can't afford it. David talked about the potential sick leave provisions of the bill, this right to accrue up to seven days and then 14 days for a public health emergency, and then a, a short-term disability-like program, paid leave, some form of government-administered program, for people who don't get sick leave. The, the short version is that I don't expect a broader policy to be made through this bill. At the end of the day, what comes out of Congress is going to be emergency leave, I believe, specifically in the context of the current crisis. Republicans are pushing back on the Democrats on any attempt to do one of two things through the bill, either to expand the federal bureaucracy or to make big picture sweeping long-term permanent policy changes through the bill. That's why I don't expect any kind of broad expansion of federal sick leave through this emergency piece of legislation. But I do think they will pass some form of emergency paid leave specifically for people impacted by COVID-19. Uh, the question there is how is it going to be administered? In the first draft of the bill, it would have gone to the Social Security Administration to administer a new program. That's the kind of thing the Republicans don't like. So that's where this don't expand the federal bureaucracy point comes in. Again, I expect something to be passed um, and a new bill to be coming out literally any minute now. Um, just more broadly, obviously this call is focused principally on the labor and employment issues, but um, later today I'm hearing that the president will declare it's being widely reported a, a national emergency, which will free up about $40 billion of federal funding to go out to the cities and states to request um, it enables them to request federal cost sharing for certain disaster relief programs. So that's something that, that will happen later today. 
And the other thing I would say is obviously Mike Pence is, is running point on this for the White House. Everybody knows that. Um, I was on a call yesterday with his chief of staff and very consistent with David with where you began about the the arc of the the progression of the disease, everything they're trying to do. They, they What they said on the call is there's a six to eight week period we're going to go through here. And everything they're doing is to try to limit the arc of of the bell curve and just limit the number of cases so closing the borders all these shutdowns it's all about trying to contain to the extent possible and they seem to have they they were projecting some level of confidence maybe somewhat different than the sense people are being given um, through news conferences and such that the measures that are being taken are going to have that effect. Obviously, we'll see, but but that that it was it was somewhat confidence inspiring. So that's all I have. Happy to take any questions, and um, thank you very much. Thanks, Howard. Um, okay, so let's talk about pay. That's the big issue, and I think that's where. Uh, you know, a lot of employers are, are really looking hard at their policies to figure out whether to do anything different. Um, we've seen a number of, you know, large companies that have made, you know, substantial changes on an emergency basis to sick pay and PTO policies. You know, the question is weighing that risk of someone coming into the workplace and potentially infecting, you know, a, a larger number of people versus the increased cost and potential abuse that could occur if, if if the company sort of opens up the floodgates on emergency sick pay. So a um, couple of thoughts there. I mean, there is a middle ground. You know, something that I've worked with a number of clients on is, you know, temporarily allowing employees to maybe go negative or accrue a, a, you know, like an advanced basis for PTO. So, uh, you know, that is an option, you know, between no pay and, and uh, you know, two weeks or, or unlimited types of uh, sick pay. So, you know, we, we're, we're seeing a broad spectrum of, you know, client solutions and company solutions to this problem, anything from on one end really not providing anything beyond what the law requires or what their policy requires to, you know, on the high end, you know, some sort of temporary emergency bank, whether that's 14 days or some other amount, um, for employees who are impacted, and, and some some employers, you know, just flat out paying people, you know, for for some period of time. Um, Dave, you know, due to the Dave, one of the Dave, I'm sorry, one of the questions we got yeah. is is a, is a general question: Are employers actually required to put a policy in place dealing with the uh, coronavirus, or is this just a matter of best practice? Yeah, I would say it's more of a matter of best practice. I mean, there's no legal requirement. It's like anything else, right, because of the discrimination potential. And, and, and when this is all said and done, we know the plaintiff's lawyers are going to come out of the woodwork probably. Um, it, it's funny how it's an encouraging thought that things will get back to normal to the point where we will have just normal plaintiff's lawyers suing us. But uh, y you have to think that at some point there may be some scrutiny of what an employer does. Is it being applied consistently? Um, you know, is there discrimination going on? Obviously, if you allowed, uh, you know, an employee of one race or gender or whatever to have one benefit that you didn't apply to other employees, 
um, you, know, you know, that could be a potential issue. You want to make sure that you're looking into the differences between state and local laws. So I think having a, a policy where it's thought out and maybe, you know, written down um, would make sure that, it, that those issues are, are more thoroughly addressed. And then just from a consistency and morale and, and, and those issues, you know, managers are going to have to apply this policy potentially in multiple offices and across, across a, you know, company. So you want to make sure it's clear what exactly the, the policy is. You know, one of the things we've been hearing and seeing is that employees are very nervous. They're scared, right? I mean, if, you know, they're watching the news, they're seeing all this news, and they're, they don't know what's going on and what's going to happen at work. So I think having a policy and communicating that policy is one good way to you know, to uh, to address those issues, keeping in mind that, you know, you want your people to come to work potentially. You may need them um, during this crisis, depending on what kind of business you're in. And I've talked to a lot of companies that are very worried that, you know, large numbers of people won't ride the subways or won't come to work. Um, critical people may not be there. So having a good comprehensive policy and communicating that and assuring them that these are the steps that we're taking, you know, might help, you know, sort of and diminish some of those concerns. So, yeah, yeah, I think a policy is a really good idea. Um, think about also how you want to apply that policy to different situations. You know, there is a difference between someone who has actually been diagnosed with COVID-19 versus someone who's just simply self-quarantining. Uh, you, you know, obviously, you may want to treat those things differently. Um, you know, versus, and again, another category would be the the anxious employee, the person who uh, just is afraid to come to work. You, you probably don't want to pay that person, right? I mean, there, there's really no good public policy reason to do that. You want to discourage that. Um, you know, what I'm seeing some again, there's a, there's a number of policies that have been publicized in this area where large employers have instead of paying those folks, just simply said, well, you can have a temporary leave of absence or we're not going to penalize you under absenteeism policies. You know, if, if you want to take some time off for some limited amount of time, you need to tell us. Um, it, but there's there's some, you know, lessening of the normal penalties for those folks. But again, that that's a step between, you know, going, you don't have to go as far as to pay those people, obviously. Um, so there's there's a variety of different scenarios, and you may want to look at you know do we want to pay in this instance and not this one? Maybe we have a different policy um, based on geography, depending on where the hotspots are. I mean those are all things that that you should be thinking about. Again, very important. We've mentioned this compliance with state and local sick pay laws. So uh, we may or may not get a federal sick pay law, you know, this week. It's possible. Uh, we'll see what happens. But in the absence of that, and and I did review the, the text of the bill, and I know a lot of folks have wanted some sort of preemption in this area. I know Sherm has been advocating for if there's going to be a federal sick pay law, we need to preempt and get rid of this hodgepodge, you know, uh, every every county and city having their own sick pay law. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, that was the bill specifically says that it doesn't do that. So um, we'll see what happens in the ultimate bill, but I, I would not hold my breath on that. So again, at the end of the day, those are those laws are there, and employers are going to have to comply with those laws. You should get advice from you know uh, a lawyer in the in those states because you know California, for example, and we've got Michelle on the line who's who's very knowledgeable about California and some of the even the cities and counties in California that have such laws. But there there are some unique issues with those with some of those laws. Um, one of them uh, is that some of them don't allow compelled use of sick pay. So if an employee doesn't want to use sick pay, in, in, in many cases you can't force them to do that. Again, most employees want to be paid. They probably want to use it. 
But, you you know, for something like a self-quarantine situation where the employer is mandating that, you know, you need to be out of the workplace for two weeks because of something that may be a trip, um, you know, the employee may not be happy with that situation and they may not want to use their sick pay. So, again, those are issues locally that that employers should be looking at and getting some advice on. Uh, Another option here for pay would be um, both you know, company temporary disability plans for someone who actually is sick and is out of the workplace for, you know, months, potentially, if it's a serious case, you know, that person might qualify for temporary disability benefits under under a company plan. But California as a state has its own uh, temporary disability program in law. So, again, that, that's another option for pay um, in these situations. So, you know, in a state like California, really you're just looking at potentially bridging somebody between, you know, that if, if they have uh, corona and require some extended hospitalization, it's really just a bridge to get them to, to short-term disability. Well, if I can, Dave, just so this is Michelle sure. from California. Yeah. It's actually two different state laws. There's a, there's, aside from all our various, you know, sick leave laws and our California uh rights and et cetera, but there's a there's disability insurance and paid family leave. When disability insurance is if somebody's unable to work due to a medical um, a quarantine or an illness related here to COVID-19, then that is a short-term benefits program um, for the employee um, itself. It basically pays approximately 60 to 70% of wages, depending on the income, um, for up to 52 weeks. We also have something called paid family leave, which is if somebody is unable to work because they're caring for someone who is either ill or has been quarantined um, with COVID-19, and that actually requires a medical certification. But that's six weeks of benefit payments up to eligible workers. But those are payments by the state, not the employer. So it's a little bit different. We have a state on top of what is also what employers might be required to do either voluntarily or because of state laws. And a question uh, also for the group on this topic uh, related. Uh, if you are requiring or if somebody is required to work from home, not just because we're requiring everyone to work uh, from home, uh, but because they're self-quarantined, uh, can they be requested or required to work while they're home in a self-quarantine situation? Uh, yes. I mean, again, I, I, if you're restricting that person's ability to come into the workplace, you still have the right. To, if they're going to be paid, uh, you, you can ask them to work from home, uh, clearly. W- one specific issue from California that maybe you can address, Michelle, would be in that scenario, uh, you may have an obligation to reimburse them for the expenses of working from home. And again, that's not the case federally or, or in every state, but certainly in California, that arrangement could create you know, an additional expense or obligation on the part of the employer. You want to talk about that, Michelle? Right. It really, de- yeah, it really depends on what you tell the employer, which is it's it's sort of counterintuitive because a lot of people don't say much about when you know when somebody's leaving. But in California, it obviously all employees have to be paid for hours worked. But hours worked because of the definition, it becomes very critical what you say. Hours worked is defined to include all the time. Uh, during which the employee is subject to the control of the employer. So the question is, when they are self-quarantining, are they subject to the control of the employer? And it's generally, it's a, that control is a two-part test. It's whether the restrictions placed on the employee are primarily directed toward fulfillment of the employer's obliga- uh, requirements and policies, 
or if the employee is substantially restricted, that they can't do anything else that they would like to do, their own private pursuits. So it really depends on what you tell the employee. Telling the employee that they have to stay home and they have to limit those private pursuits. In other words, they cannot go to events, they can't go out socially, etc. That might be deemed as enough control over that employee as to warrant payment. And on the other hand, if you just tell the employee that you stay out of, you must stay out of the workplace, um, just to see if they develop symptoms, and nothing is said about what they do while they're out of the workplace, then you would not be under control. They would not be under your control, so no payment would be required. So it's really critical what's conveyed as to whether or not payment for a self-quarantine in California is going to be required. Yeah, and I think what, what, again, what we're telling our clients is it's not really that you're telling them to stay at home. You just simply don't want them coming into the workplace. And, and that's a really critical distinction there. And another thing that, that really comes up in these situations is doctor's notes and medical certification. So under a normal scenario for someone who is sick and coming back to work, you may require uh, some sort of medical um, certification to be able to come back to work. For someone who's out sick, many companies have policies that if you're out for more than three days, you need to have a doctor's note or something along those lines. That's a real issue right now for two reasons. Um, you know, one, sending someone to a doctor um, right now could potentially subject that person to to more risk because they might just have the flu. And, you know, sending that person into an environment where they could contract COVID-19 may not be the the best course of action for you because it may prolong that person's uh, absence. So there's that friction between we don't want people taking advantage of the situation and just deciding I'm going to take a week off um, by saying I'm sick. Uh, you know, we may want that person to, to, to bring us some proof of illness along the same lines, though. We don't want to, you know, throw them into a situation where it's an overloaded health care system and in one of these, you know, hot spots um, where doctors are just really don't have time to see people who aren't um, really needing to be seen. So um, th that's a really tough call. And I think, you know, we're basically at a situation where you have to treat them on a case-by-case -case basis and consider whether, you you know, you might want to waive certification requirements, uh, you know, in, in some instances or in some geographic locations. Um, so I think that's something that employers should be really looking at. I, I think you should also be looking at different situations may call for different rules. So, uh, you know, another question that we get a lot is, um, sh you know, can we uh, ask for someone to be tested uh, on the front end? Um, you know, they're sick, they're, they're demonstrating symptoms, we want to know what to do with this person, we need to know if, they're, if they have coronavirus or not. So, again, testing is not widely available. Uh, it may be very difficult to even get that person tested. If they're not, you know, very uh, serious, if it's just, you know, very minor symptoms, they might not even be able to be tested in some places. Uh, also, if you require that person to get what's effectively a fitness for duty exam, you're going to have to pay for it. And the time you know, that they have to spend to, um, to take that test. So, uh, again, that, that's not something that I, that I think we're recommending on, on, a, on a, you know, widespread basis as a matter of course. I think that would be something that you, you may want to not do as a general rule and maybe reserve that for maybe extraordinary cases. Same thing on the back end is, you know, what do you do if someone is out sick for a week with flu-like symptoms, but you don't really know if that person has the flu or a cold 
or uh, coronavirus. And, and all of the, the statistics and the, the health professionals are telling us that, especially for young people, it's very, it's very possible that a young person is just sick for a couple of days, uh, no, no real serious symptoms, gets better, um, and otherwise is feeling good and might want to come back to work. So again, in that situation, what do you do with that person? Do you, do you require them to go to a, a doctor and get some sort of return to work certification? What does that even mean? They've never been tested. So you really don't know, um, you know, what situation you're bringing back, um, into the workplace. So, you know, I think our best practice in this area would be for someone who has a formal diagnosis or a presumptive diagnosis with coronavirus, you want to be much more conservative with that person. You want to make sure not only are they no longer having symptoms, but you know that's someone that you're, you're probably going to want a certification from their doctor and have them consult with a medical professional and let the doctor decide when that person is, is able to come back into the workplace. Um, you may want to have a different policy for someone who just is out sick for a couple of days. You know, um, right now, I'm not sure that you want to treat those two the same for the reasons that we've just talked about. But obviously erring on the side of caution and you know, maybe taking the position that another day or two to make sure the person is, is fully you know, through any symptoms and, and any contagious uh, period is probably you know, a good idea at this point. The FMLA and other unpaid leave. So we've talked about paid leave, but there also might be situations where an employee would be entitled to unpaid leave, which again would be job protection. So the Family and, the Me Family and Medical Leave Act, or the FMLA, provides 12 weeks of, of unpaid leave, um, but it's job protected. So the employer has the obligation to, not, to, to hold that job, uh, not terminate or, or discriminate against that individual which for some of these cases, uh, there could be significant amounts of time that somebody is out potentially for sickness. Um, there also might be situations where an employee would be caring for a family member um, who is sick, and that would trigger potential coverage under the Family Medical Leave Act. Um, generally speaking, again, as Michelle noted, there are exceptions for California, New York, and other states and local um, areas, but parental leave is not one of the stated um, uh, conditions under the FMLA as of right now. Again, that is something that is was in the, the initial draft of the legislation that's currently being negotiated. So that could change. But but as of right now, there's no federal entitlement for a parent to stay home simply because they have a child that's out of school. That being said, again, we're in this you know sort of uh, you know uncharted waters where if if a, a parent says, hey, I've got a child and they're feeling ill. Um, I need some time off. You don't know whether the child is really ill or they just want to stay home with that child because they're out of school. And it's going to be very difficult. Your normal certification process would be if someone says that, well, we need, you know, here's our FMLA paperwork. You need to take that to the doctor and certify that the child is sick and how much time you're going to need off. That, that process is going to be very difficult to administer in a place like Seattle right now. So, uh, you know, I think the only real course of action right now is to follow that process because you don't want to just abandon it, but certainly understanding that employees may need more time, they may not be able to see a doctor, and, and, and you know, again, some compassion probably is the, is the right course of action there. Um, another interesting question is whether a, a quarantine situation where the person is not actually sick but is under a self-quarantine because they might get sick, whether that would be a serious 
health condition triggering FMLA coverage. I, I think the prevailing wisdom on that is to treat it like it would be covered. So again, you couldn't fire somebody uh, if, if, if they you know, were under a self-quarantine situation because they, they went to a country or a vacation or, or went somewhere and, and were exposed. Um, the, the last item on this list is what to do about, we've talked about this a little bit, the anxious employee. So, so the employee who says, I'm just not comfortable coming to work as a cashier because, you know, I'm going to see 100 people and, uh, you know, I'm just, that makes me nervous and I might be exposed, so I don't want to do that. Or, uh, you know, I don't want to ride the subway. Uh, it's just, that's just something that I, I'm not feel, I don't feel comfortable doing because I have an elderly person that I live with, and if I get sick, I'll be fine, but then th they may get sick and, be, and have a much more serious time. So I, I think companies need to look at how are we going to treat those individuals. So there's two parts to that. I mean, one part is do they have a right to refuse to, to work? And we're going to talk about that in some detail in a minute. But the other flip side of that is if that person comes to you and just simply asks for time off, you know, are you going to give that to them? If someone says, I'd like to take a two-week leave of absence, I'm not refusing to work, but, you know, I'd just like to take some time off. Are, are you going to allow that person to take that time off on an unpaid basis um, or not? Uh, I, I've seen a number, again, large companies in this situation who have said, we're going to lighten our attendance policy, we're going to be more liberal in giving people personal leaves of absence in this situation based on, you know, their own uh, individual circumstances. The next, the next topic is protections for employees who refuse to work. So the first one is OSHA. So I'm going to let John talk about this a little bit because this is one that really is, is a critical one uh, in this area. Right. So. Um Worth sharing. I, hi, everyone. Uh, John Ho here. I chair the firm's OSHA practice group here. And you know, with the most of these employment statutes have retaliation provisions, and obviously not surprisingly, so does OSHA. And uh, actually, earlier last week, some OSHA representatives shared with an uh, ABA group that, as of at least then, they had they were investigating 20 um, complaints, uh, independent complaints about retaliation, and they obviously couldn't go into the details. Uh, because it was an active investigations, but they were related to essentially claims that you know I don't want to go to work because it's you know it's not safe. So um, and I will say, you know, obviously OSHA hasn't ruled on those yet, but it's like it's you know certainly they have a right to file that complaint. OSHA is very sensitive to this, as David uh, mentioned. OSHA's uh, I think we're pretty good uh, being on top of um, this issue with recent guidance that we have provided the link for. So. You know, no matter what you do, you may you may get these kinds of complaints, and OSHA has a process called the rapid investigation process, where they won't necessarily formal, formally investigate, but they'll ask the employer to um, they'll, they'll identify what the complaint was and ask the employer to respond to that and what they've done and what they're doing to abate. And you know, I'm going to get into in a little bit more when we cover the actual OSHA slide what OSHA is recommending. But just in the abstract, I mean, if employer does nothing, then I certainly think there is a greater chance, particularly if you're in an ex, you know, affected area, that OSHA may move on to the next level and do a formal complaint. But if you follow some of OSHA's suggestions and some of the things that David's talking about in terms of you know, engineering and administrative controls to minimize the risk, I think you know, from a practical standpoint, it's probably very unlikely that OSHA would then move forward on a retaliation complaint from a, you know, a quote-unquote healthy employee just saying, you know, or the anxious employee, if you will, that just says, I don't want to go to work. But I, again, I'll get into the more specifics 
that I think will help defend against those retaliation claims of what employers can do when we hit the OSHA slides. And I just want to mention again to thank everybody uh, who is uh, uh, giving us some questions, submitting questions. Uh, we will, as they become relevant to the issue being discussed, we'll raise some of these questions and try to spend a few minutes at the end as well. Uh, for those of you who have submitted questions but uh, didn't get them answered live here, we will reach out to you offline, uh, but we uh, continue to thank you for doing so. Dave? Yeah, thanks, Mike. So, uh, again, a couple other areas of concern, uh, Americans with Disabilities Act, obviously an employee who is disabled that has a uh, concern over you know, doing a certain task or being in a certain area um, or coming to work altogether may ask for a reasonable accommodation. The, the law requires that an employer engage in an interactive process with that employee and uh, try to find out if there is some way to reasonably accommodate uh, that situation. Again, there's nothing really new about that process. Employers and HR professionals have been doing it for a long time. This is just the stakes are higher, right? So um, th there may be specific state or local laws that come into play. I'm in Texas, so I included one on here. Um, you know, we have protections in, in Texas for employees can't be fired if they're uh, they leave their their uh, if they're absent because of a, a a notice related to a hurricane, for example, an evacuation order. Uh, you know, that statute also talks about epidemics, and there's a very you know fine line between an evacuation order and a quarantine order. So you know, I think there's a good argument that that law would apply in Texas. There's other states. I know, for example, New Jersey has a law that protects employees who are uh, can't come to work because of a quarantine order. So, um, you know, those things need to be considered before you terminate someone who's unable to work because of some sort of quarantine order or absence. Um, you you want to make sure you have all the facts and, again, move slowly and conservatively in those situations. Many states also have exceptions to the employment at will doctrine based on public policy. It's very likely that in you know, many states, a court would decide that it's bad public policy to allow an employer to fire somebody who's you know, subject to a quarantine or something along those lines in a public health emergency. So, you know, again, I think this is probably a no-brainer, but again, this is an area where employers should tread lightly. And you know, if someone's missing work, you want to find out why they're missing work and maybe slow down the application of your normal attendance policies in, in, the, in this instance. Um, one more uh, area before we turn it over to John on OSHA, but again, what does you know, social distancing is something else that employers are doing right now. What does that look like in the workplace? Again, these are practical things. They're not really legal things. So I'm not going to go through all of these, but these are the types of steps that employers are doing you may want to think about. Um, again, what you're trying to do is spread out risk, you know, flatten the curve, as we've talked about. You may want to separate critical employees so that um, if, if a person is, um, you know, diagnosed, they're going to, con uh, you know, contact trace that back to your workplace. So if that person is in an office with 10 other people on a daily basis, those 10 other people may have to stay home. You know, what does that mean for your workforce? So if those 10 people are your most important 10 people, maybe you want to split them up. Um, have them work different shifts, different days, half work from home, half work in the office, on a, you know, things like that to try to minimize the disruption um, from, from an incident that's, that impacts your workplace. And you know, again, there's no rhyme or reason to this, and as this thing gets bigger, the odds of that happening in your workplace go up with every day. So, all right, I want to turn it over to John. Thanks, David. So, um, I, you know, we thought we'd start the OSHA um, 
presentation with just a discussion about hygiene, environmental safety, as David, you know, started with. I mean, this is a novel virus, and it seems like almost daily we're finding out new information from a medical aspect on on what this virus is, how it's uh, transmitted, and how long it lives. But, but let's start just briefly with, you know, what what I think is sort of an established with medical certainty, and that is that COVID-19 is spread mainly from person to person, right, including those that are in close contact. OSHA and the CDC have indicated that what they consider close contact to be within six feet. So to the extent that you're implementing some of those um, uh, those, those social um, uh, isolation issues that David was talking about, I think that should be really the goal, and that it's uh, transmitted through respiratory droplets, which are produced when an infected, when an infected person coughs or, or sneezes, and that these droplets can then enter the, the mouths and noses and the eyes and possibly inhale through the lungs. And that you know OSHA you know has made clear that is that infection is possible by touching a surface or object and then you know touching the the, the mouth hand and nose and that's why you hear you know you know all everybody say you know just you know keep your hands don't touch your face because that's where the virus can enter. I heard a um a, 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 a NIOSH doctor recently you know told the, the audience like think of your hands as your weapons right I mean that's really where your exposure points are going to be. You can't get it, you know, by just touching a contaminated surface. It's really got to go through one of those membranes. Uh, and again, just, you know, to, to point out how quickly the, the medical information is moving, I also just recently read a study earlier this week from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease that indicated that, you know, their, their data showed that uh, the virus could be, could be detected in the air you know, for up to three hours, right, which obviously at some, you know, at, at a very fundamental level is scary, but they also emphasize and the CDC has, you know, stated that there's no confirmed cases of somebody walking into, quote, unquote, contaminated air and, and being infected. So, I mean, and hopefully it certainly stay that way and that these studies are also showing that the virus can last on certain surfaces for different periods of time. The last study I read from the same institute said, you know, cardboard, maybe, you know, about a day. Um, other uh, surfaces like plastic, stainless steel, two to three days, and, and glass, um, you know, which might be more common in the typical office setting for maybe a little bit longer. So you might want to, you know, maybe take that into consideration when you're dealing with and you're revisiting, you know, your environmental uh, routine uh, cleaning. Um, Scenario. So, I, I, the good news here is that look, this, you know, the environmental cleaning piece doesn't require, um, you know, something like asbestos where you have a whole hazmat team come in and do the environmental cleaning, right? The OSHA and the CDC are talking about really the two-step process, which in some respects is pretty routine, right? There's the cleaning component of it, which are just removing the germs, the dirts, and the impurities from the surfaces. Obviously, cleaning uh, cleaning does not kill the germs, but it lowers their numbers, and therefore that helps to you know to risk spreading the disease. And then there's the disinfecting piece, right? Using the chemicals to kill them, um, and that two-step process is. Uh, what the next slide shows is really um, what the CDC recommends as the best practice for preventing um, the spread of COVID-19, again, which is cleaning visible surfaces and this dis disinfecting it. And, and some of this, uh, you know, certainly is common sense. I mean, they suggest performing this routine environmental cleaning on frequently touched surfaces such as, you know, uh, in the workplaces such as workstations, countertops, doorknobs, uh, obviously using the cleaning agents uh, according to their labeling. Uh, the CDC has made clear they don't, they don't necessarily recommend, you know, additional disinfection beyond routine cleaning, but the EPA um, has uh, a list, and you see the link here, of agents that they believe are going to be more effective uh, when, uh, uh, to help kill the virus. 
uh, and that information is based on data for other harder to kill viruses. So as a, you know, as a practical suggestion, um, if you have uh, directly hiring uh, uh, janitorial staff, just make sure to take a look at this list with the link, make sure that uh, the, the disinfectants are on this list. You're going to see some common household names like Clorox, so hopefully uh, you're, you are doing that already, or if you're using vendors, I'm, I'm guessing that most vendors are you're going to be very aware of this list, but just make sure that this is part of your, uh, your due diligence in, in making sure that these products are used. Uh, I would just mention, too, if you, are, if you haven't been using one of these chemicals and you start to use it, then just make sure that you have uh, you're, you're following your hazard communication plan because now you are obviously entering a new chemical uh, into the workforce, which you have to have, like for instance, uh, MSDSs and provide other information and training uh, re regarding that use. If you're using a vendor, then those uh, those issues may not apply to you in that in that situation. Um, you know, in terms of standards, I mean, clearly there's no. COVID-19 standard that applies, but there's certainly a couple of, you know, OSHA standards that we want to talk about and raise as, you know, potential considerations of what we're doing. And the first is the general duty clause, it's Section 5A1 of, of OSHA, and that generally requires all employers to furnish an employee, you know, a place of employment which is free of recognized hazards, you know, that are causing or likely to cause death or serious harm. Historically, OSHA's used the 5A1 uh, clause to issue citations for things like workplace violence or ergonomics, again, where there's not a specific standard, and OSHA in its materials that we referenced and on a, its uh, uh, COVID-19 webpage uh, references 5A1. Certainly the suggestion there is if you don't do what we think you should be doing, a reasonable uh, employer should be doing to, you know, combat or abate uh, COVID-19 that, you know, they have the right to cite you under 5A1. Uh, we're going to talk about the PPE standard in a little bit more detail. That's personal protective equipment. And obviously, like any OSHA issue, COVID-19 is no exception. You know, what PPE you use, whether it's glove, face protections, respiratory masks, and or surgical masks, which there's been a lot of questions about, which I'll address, you know, in a minute, will depend on, you know, the worker's duties, right? The employer has an obligation under OSHA to conduct, you know, a workplace hazard assessment, and then depending on that hazard assessment, then make the determination of what PPE is necessary. Um, not John? John? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. So just on this point about the, there being no specific federal OSHA standard, we've gotten a few questions on this topic. How reactive do we think OSHA is going to be uh, in terms of quickly or maybe not so quickly creating specific standards or even looking at what steps now are being taken in the, the cleaning hygiene area and, and consider those to be new minimum standards that everyone is going to have to be following? Right. And, well, I, you know, the... You know, to answer the, the you know the first part of that question, I mean, rulemaking takes a lot of time, right? There's public comment periods, so I, I I think it's highly unlikely that we see you know a specific COVID-19 standard. I mean, there's no you know influenza flu's been you know obviously around for a long time, SARS, H1N1. I mean, this is certainly not the first contagious disease that employers have encountered over the years, and you know we we don't have any specific standards as to those. So I so I don't think the the answer is a specific standard, but rather um, OSHA's 5A1 again, and looking, you know, looking to those past events and those past um, contagious disease issues as a, as a guideline. And again, one of the problems is, of course, uh, that we don't have enough medical information yet, um, really, to to do that. And so I, that's you know, one key part of any response plan, as you know, David mentioned, is to have 
constant communication with um, you know OSHA um, or the CDC to to determine what they what recommendations they are they are making. So you know, and that may change. And one of the one of the slides we're going to talk about you know raises that exact point that you know part of this is just understanding and and appreciating and digesting and reacting to the information as we learn it. Um, you know, in terms of OSHA enforcement. Uh, I, I have a, you know, I remember before I used to, you know, prosecute these cases with the ocean. Obviously, that's, it's been a while, and certainly not with COVID-19. But, but I can tell you that I, I think as an enforcement policy, this they are not going to be looking to right, cite employers, you know, for this, right, unless I think there are somewhat egregious violations. And, you know, if you look at the slide, and as David mentioned, you know, healthcare is certainly one of those instances where I, I could... I can see OSHA being much more aggressive, right? Because the nature of the hazard is so heightened. And we're going to talk in a minute about the various categories that OSHA puts these puts employers into with respect to their potential uh, a risk assessment and their risk level. So, but for lower and moderate type uh, employees, which is going to be most of us that OSHA has stated, I think uh, they're going to be cautious. I mean, obviously that's just my opinion, but it's also what I'm, you know, the the sense I get talking with OSHA. Now, that's actually a good segue to a couple of the other standards I wanted to mention that aren't on the slide. But again, if you're in a healthcare setting, bloodborne pathogen standards might apply that require the use of certain kinds of respirators. OSHA has a general sanitation standard that you might have to consider and record keeping, right? So for if you have to keep records, and that's most of us, except for some smaller employers or, or ones designated in low hazard industries, most employers under OSHA have to keep the OSHA log, <clears throat> post a post the summary and do an incident report form. And the question is, do I have to record an incident of, you know, COVID-19? And again, the, there's an exception that says the common cold of the flu does not have to be recordable. OSHA has made clear that COVID-19, you know, not surprisingly, is not the common cold or flu. So, you know, the general rule is, you know, if you have an exposure um, in the workplace uh, that results in COVID-19, then that's recordable, right? And, and that's going to be, you know, a tricky issue is it going to be that very fact sensitive. How do you determine, you know, it was an exposure in the workplace, right? And again, if you are have an exposure in healthcare, I think prudence would suggest, right, and the evidence might suggest that, you know, that's where the exposure was. If if you're a smaller employer in a situation where your employees are not commuting on mass transit and there's only five of you and somebody in itself quarantined, you know, comes down with COVID-19, is there is there a link between that and the workplace? Probably not. And, and again, it's those kind of cases where I don't think OSHA is going to aggressively enforce that. Um, but again, even the recording issue, as you can see, can be very you know very fact sensitive. So the next thing on the OSHA front, I just I want to talk about which I mentioned in the in the guidance. So OSHA has put together uh, publication thirty nine ninety, which essentially divides risk level into four categories. Right, very high high, medium, lower, and again, like all of uh, these hazard assessments for OSHA, it really depends on the facts, right? And so OSHA has indicated that part of the risk level depends upon the industry, of course, uh, the need for contact for folks that uh, within six feet and how regular is that contact with people that either have, are known, uh, known people that are infected or suspected, um, and so as examples uh, to help employers through this uh, classification, right, very high um, very high employees of those healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, right? Those that are performing aerosol generating procedures, uh, intubation, cough induction procedures makes obviously a lot of sense. 
And if you're in that space, you've got, again, some things like bloodborne pathogens that you're hopefully complying with as well. Uh, the next level down is high. There's a high potential for exposure to known or suspected sources, and, and, and some examples there are healthcare delivery and support staff, medical transport workers, and mortuary workers. And then we move to the medium and the lower risk groups. And again, OSHA has stated that most employees will likely fall into these two categories. And then the medium is the frequent of you know, close contact with people who may be infected but are not known or suspected COVID-19 patients. Um, those in areas uh, with ongoing community transmissions or contacts uh, with um, travelers who may return for those locations with widespread transmission. And unfortunately, as you know, as David mentioned, you know, a month ago that probably was just you know, you know, foreign countries. And now we've got to take a much closer look at who's going to fall into that medium risk category based on. Uh, you know, this ever-changing reporting of, of these cases. And then, you know, finally, there's the low category that jobs that, you know, do not require contact with people known to be or suspected uh, or, or nor frequent contact with them. Um, so, again, in, in any kind of situation in terms of abatement, OSHA really looks at uh, two fundamental principles, engineering controls and, and administrative controls. And we'll talk, uh, uh, you know, briefly now about some engineering controls. And, and the engineering controls that are appropriate, again, is going to, you know, depend on your industry, the size of your workforce, what your, what your workers are doing, and all the other things that we just talked about. Uh, but engineering controls, generally speaking, is an attempt to right, isolate employees from the work-related hazards. Uh, these types of controls don't rely on worker uh, changing worker behaviors and sometimes can be cost-effective solutions. Uh, OSHA has indicated uh, we'll just we'll list them, high-efficiency air filters, increasing ventilation rates in the work environment, physical barriers such as plastic sneeze guards, uh, using drive-through windows for customer service, again, in an effort to have that social distancing, and, uh, you know, special negative pressure ventilation units if you are engaged in that, in the high-target, high-risk aerosol generating procedures. And again, these are not necessarily recommendations for all categories, but just some that, you know, they listed, and it really will depend, you know, on the nature of the risk and, and your assessment. Talking uh, about some Administrative controls, and certainly David has, you know, gone over a lot of these, but again, just, be, you know, because OSHA has specifically identified a few, it's probably just worth, you know, mentioning again. I mean, clearly it's the employee um, communicating employees that they should stay home sick, right, minimizing the contact between workers and face-to-face -face meetings using virtual communications. We talked about some of the alternating shifts, staggering the shifts. I know, you know, one bank, David, had mentioned, like, the, the – um, trying to make less of a central population of employees. One, one bank in upstate New York that has offices in Buffalo, for example, is spreading them out to remote sites. Uh, and again, that sort of goes to the, the theory of, you know, you know, also ensuring that your critical decision makers, if they get affected, you don't lose those employees all at once. So that's all part of it. Uh, the communication, you know, the communication is always a key component with OSHA, right? They, they want the employer to really make sure that the that any communication that's being done is being done effectively that you're working with employees that they know where to go to you know some of our uh some of the questions that we get well what you know setting up hotlines right uh, setting up an intranet where these as information is learned what employees when you're going to return to work things of that nature are all you know hopefully centralized to some degree um other safe work practices um that OSHA is recommending of course uh, is instituting things like no-touch trash cans, no-touch 
uh, hand sanitizers. And I think the consensus is that hand sanitizers should be at least 60% alcohol-based, right? And, and again, some of these may be certainly common sense, but posting hand washing signs in the restrooms. And, and, and in this situation, I mean, OSHA does appreciate that you really want to encourage uh, employee involvement, right? You know, no, no matter if you do increased routine cleaning, maybe maybe you've had a vendor come in once every three days, it might make sense to maybe do that daily. Certainly not suggesting every day again, but depending on, you know, the workplace. But OSHA does recognize that really part of this is the communication and making, you know, sure employees have access and the, uh, you know, and the facility has uh, the appropriate um, things like can sanitizer available where they can take responsibilities, you know, for themselves. Um, so in terms of, um, you know, PPE, again, it really, you know, it depends, but, you know, generally speaking, right, we're talking about things like gloves, goggles, face shields, you know, respiratory protection when appropriate, you know, and, and as a basic, right, all PPE, here's the requirements, you know, not just for necessarily COVID-19 PPE, but selected based on the hazard to the employee, you know, obviously, we want to make sure it's properly fitted, periodically refitted. I mean, in here, that's probably more to the respiratory protection issues. Consistently worn and properly worn, regularly inspected, maintained, and replaced, and properly removed and cleaned and, of course, disposed of so to avoid, you know, contamination, you know, in the disposal uh, process itself. Um, you know, talk uh, a minute about, you know, surgical uh face masks because we you know we've gotten you know, a lot of questions that employees will come in and say I want to wear a, a surgical face mask and you need to provide me with one well you know right now OSHA and the CDC are pretty consistent that um, surgical face masks are recommended only for source containment meaning that if somebody is ill a surgical face mask has some benefits so that that person when they cough or they sneeze are not spreading the virus but that for healthy employees in the workforce that is not a suggested PPE and really isn't a PPE. And of course, so I, I think from an OSHA perspective, do you have to provide surgical face masks? Um, no, right? I mean, it, generally speaking, no. then the next question is, well, you know, you know, if you want to, could you? Yes, I, I, I think all of us are probably aware that there's a, there's a, um, a face mask, um, you know, those are in high demand and, and there's a shortage of them. So, and that's part of the reasoning why the CDC and OSHA are suggesting that you don't provide them because you don't want to interfere with people that actually need them. But again, if you if you wanted to, at least for the low-level exposure people, I mean, you could. I mean, that becomes more of a labor relations issue, your business operations. I mean, do you want people walking around, particularly if you're dealing with the public, you know, potentially creating more more fear or panic? So those are some of the issues that, you know, employers are going to need to think about and, and wrestle with at, at some level. But, you know, from the, from the OSHA perspective, that is, that is not PP and it's not necessary. Um, you know, we'll talk about the two probably main employer risk groups, starting with the low employer risk group. And again, pointing back to publication 3990, what OSHA says is, you know, follow our steps and many of the steps, uh, I think all of the steps really, you know, David has, has gone into what we've just discussed in terms of, you know, other controls. You know, OSHA doesn't take any additional engineering controls or recommended, uh, you know, for this lower level group. Um, coming back to the communication piece, you can see, you know, why OSHA keeps coming back to that as, a, as an administrative control to, 
to educate employees on what's going on as the information continues to develop, you know, monitor those public health communications recommendations, and ensure employees have access with it, and work with your employees so they know and there's no question that they can get the information you know, as it's made available. And then we'll talk about uh, the medium exposure group um, here. They, they suggest, again, if it's appropriate, it's certainly not going to be appropriate for every you know, uh, you know, setting, but uh, physical barriers such as clear plastic these cars may be appropriate. Uh, and, and I talked about this before. Here in this situation, for the medium exposure risk group, maybe consider face masks, but again, only to ill employees or customers to contain uh, respiratory secretions until they can leave the workplace. And recognizing the mask shortage, uh, OSHA has said that you know reusable face shields that can be decontaminated can be acceptable. And there's guidance on that procedure and, and what to use, and we've shared a link with you there. Again, keeping, also keeping customers informed about symptoms and asking them to minimize contact with workers until they are healthy, you know, posting signs, particularly at locations such as pharmacies where obviously uh, sick people are going to be visiting. So this process from OSHA's perspective, because you know, obviously OSHA generally only applies to protecting your employees, but since here the, the customers, you know, could be the recognized hazards, the communication to them also becomes important. Limiting customers and the public access to the workplace, restricting those access, and again, that all comes into the social uh, distancing concept that, that we talked about, you know, minimizing face-to-face -face contact, and then potentially uh, considering communication availability of medical screening or other uh, in, in worker health resources, such as an on-site nurse. You know, again, all you see the theme just focusing on this communication and education piece. Um, you know, outside of OSHA, there are 28 different states, including, not surprisingly, California that has Cal-OSHA that may have additional uh, standards uh, that govern. So let me, um, yeah, John, let me, this is Michelle from California. Let sure. me just quickly jump in so we can, it's very simple. Cal-OSHA Cal does not have a specific COVID-19 standard at the time, but importantly, they are, they still have a aerosol transmissible disease standard so that, you know, basically is to protect employees from airborne infections diseases, which would cover COVID-19. But it only applies to certain types of employers, obviously, hospitals, laboratories, et cetera, et cetera. If you're not in that group, it still has some very that you can take a look at that standard to see what in you know how it would be applied uh, to to basically meet your requirement of of a safe workplace. But if you're not covered by the ATD standard in California, the, gov the state is recommending you look at the CDC's interim guidance for businesses, employers, and if anybody has not been on that site yet, it is chock full of information, uh, not only for employers, but for your home, for schools, for churches, meeting places, etc. So, you know, you just have to be very cognizant of local and state laws. So, that was that's a great presentation on OSHA. Hopefully, they will, on a national level, get something together sooner. But I think um, moving into medical exams, uh, which I know is uh, we've been getting lots of questions about the ADA and medical exams. So, Dave? Yeah. So, so again, this is a very hot topic. And, you know, we've been getting lots of questions about employers considering doing things like temperature scans that we're going to talk about specifically. Um, it's really not a very complicated issue right now for this reason. We have a very uh, good EEOC uh, set of guidelines that make very clear that in a situation like this, that employers can 
um, engage in reasonable inquiries in terms of asking people questions, uh, even examinations like temperature checks. If, if you would have asked me without looking at that document whether the EOC would have said it's okay, I would have bet against that. But, but they have, in fact, said that you know, within reason, based on data and, and you know, a guideline from the CDC, it is okay. I will tell you that in the CDC guidelines for New Rochelle up in New York and for the Seattle area, uh, which the CDC has put out, they are specifically recommending that employers engage in uh, screening of employees before they're allowed into the workplace. So, you know, the current, current guidance right now is that employers not only can engage in reasonable levels of increase in screens, but they should, uh, especially in areas where there's community outbreaks. So I think from that standpoint, that, that's some comfort, I, I know, to a lot of employers. It's important to note that obviously the normal discrimination rules would apply. So you couldn't just do screens of, you know, minority groups, Asians, older workers, people with underlying conditions. Obviously that wouldn't be permissible, right? I mean, it has to be done on a, a neutral basis without regard to any sort of protected class. So let's talk about temperature checks because this is one that has come up specifically and it, and it is somewhat of a unique situation. A couple of things to think about if, if, you're, if you're considering doing that uh, within your company. Uh, first off, it may not be your choice because building owners or you know, property management companies are in some cases doing it. But um, if you're thinking about doing it yourself as an employer, think about the practical issues. Who's going to do it? Are they going to be trained? Um, where are they going to do it? So I mean, there's, there's a lot of practical logistics issues that need to be considered. Are you going to do it yourself or are you going to contract it out to somebody else like a, a medical provider? I don't believe there's a lot of medical providers currently with the resources to do it. I, in the instances that I've seen, it's been you know existing staff, whether security guards at a checkpoint um, or, or a member of HR or management that, that's been doing it, in which case you don't have to worry about the HIPAA side. A um, couple of thoughts on other laws that might come into play, and this is something that, again, we're in uncharted waters, so we don't know, you know where the risk areas are going to be when this is all said and done, but we can think of some of them. One would be the potential wage and hour concern about the time. Let's say there's a checkpoint and it backs up and employees are in that line for 10 or 15 minutes. That's, that's no longer a de minimis amount of time. So there may be an argument that employees should be paid for that, for that time. And, and we've seen that argument be made in the context of security checks with you know, retailers and in my area of the world down here in Texas with, with plants and, and refineries and those types of things. Um, you know, probably your best argument in that case would be that you're doing it for everybody. It's not just for employees. It's a public health situation. Um, there's no, it's not benefiting the employer per se. It's for the benefit generally of the public. It's a temporary measure. It's an emergency measure. So I think those are good arguments to avoid the compensability of that time, but, but those arguments might be made. Um, some other things to think about would be potential biometric screening laws. There's, a, there's a, such a law in Illinois. Again, I don't, I don't believe that this is a biometric screening because it's not, uh, temperature is not an identifying piece of data. So again, I don't think that would apply, but there may be arguments that those laws apply. For employees that refuse to participate for religious reasons or maybe a medical reason, there might be a duty to accommodate that and have an interactive discussion with that person. There could be uh, duties to negotiate with the union over such a measure. Um, for employees who refuse on a concerted basis, more than one, that could be, even in a non-union environment, uh, you know, protected concerted activity, which might, again, give employees rights to, 
to refuse something like that. So um, it, it's not an easy thing, but but certainly, again, many employers are doing it, and the CDC is actually recommending that that employers do it. Um, I've excerpted the in these materials a piece from the EOC pandemic guidelines. I'm not going to go through it in, in great detail, but just for the folks who want these materials to see that what the EOC has said on this. And again, the EOC has made very clear that in this type of situation, especially where a pandemic has been declared, that there is an exception to an ADA claim. It's not discrimination. Um, if what the employer is doing is to, if there's a if there's a significant risk of substantial harm to the safety of the workforce, so the, there can be no discrimination claim brought um, in, in such an instance. So again, that that's a, I think, some peace of mind um, in, in this area. And again, this is just the excerpt of of what the EOC has said, which specifically says, you know, if the CDC has made this determination that there's a pandemic and that this disease is contagious and poses a direct threat, then employers do have you know, additional rights in, in that instance to, to engage in much more aggressive screening and inquiries of employees. Um, the, the issue, I know I've been watching the questions, and there's been a number of them about reasonable accommodation under the ADA. And, and again, this is something that employers should absolutely be considering in all of these steps that they're taking. What if an employee comes to me or us uh, as a company and says, you know, I have some specific unique situation based on maybe uh, an immune deficiency, uh, you know, maybe a respiratory illness like asthma, you know, maybe I'm recovering from, from a disease like cancer, and they ask for, for some sort of special treatment. You know, that's clearly a request for reasonable accommodation under the ADA, and the normal rules would apply. Uh, now, the, the, the analysis might be different because we're in an emergency situation, but you still would have to go through that interactive dialogue with that employee, um, which again, HR professionals and companies are very used to doing, um, and, and determine whether is it reasonable to allow this person some sort of exception, keeping in mind that you don't have to give them what they want. Uh, you can you only have to make a quote reasonable accommodation. So you know it's not it's not like it's you know just uh, a determination of what the the employee is requesting. You can look at other options to perhaps address their issue. Maybe it's we'll give you a temporary leave of absence if you don't want to follow our rules right now. We understand that, but you know these are the rules temporarily, and if you don't want to follow those, then you're welcome to take a, a leave of absence. Um, employee privacy concerns also have been at the forefront w with this situation. Lots of concerns over um, what do we do if we have an employee that tests positive? Um, do, should we tell coworkers? Can we tell? A uh, couple of thoughts on, on that front. Um, you know, I, John, I'm sure, will confirm that there may be an obligation or there is an obligation certainly to potentially advise employees if they've been exposed to an illness at work. The health department may do that for you if you choose not to do that. They're, in many cases, they're tracing contacts back. You don't want them to hear that from someone else. You want, to, you want them to hear it from you. Um, obviously, you should not be giving you know, names in these cases. Employees may be able to figure it out. Uh, you know, but from an employer communication standpoint, it should be limited to, look, you may have been exposed to uh, COVID-19. Here's the steps that we're taking w without getting into names and specific people. Uh, th that would be certainly required under the ADA, which requires an employer to keep medical information confidential, separate and apart from HIPAA. 
again, typically under HIPAA, the information that an employer would, would come into contact with under its employment policies, you know, doctor's notes and those types of things, uh, that's typically not covered under HIPAA, but it would be covered under the ADA privacy laws. So it's important to respect and, and follow that, that obligation. I want to throw just a, just a, some people have asked, you know, are there any cases out there? There's really not. This is, in many instances, uncharted territory, but there actually is a, a uh, case out there involving Ebola where an employer terminated a uh, massage therapist who refused to cancel a trip to, to one of the hot zones. And, and there is, so there is some, again, precedent out there that gives some uh, a window into how courts are going to treat these cases because we know in, you know, after this is all over, there will be lawsuits. And I, I think this is just between the EOC's guidelines and this particular case, uh, which again found in favor of the employer, uh, it's a good window that employers are going to be given pretty broad latitude to keep employees safe. And, and that really should be the overarching goal here. Um, the, the last piece we want to talk about, and, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but you know, there's going to be economic disruption. It's going to be, in many cases, depending on industry and geography, but, uh, you know, we're seeing that already, and there's probably going to be more of it. Uh, you know, it's a really good time to be very familiar with what obligations there are legally out there for things like temporary layoffs, permanent layoffs, reductions in pay. Uh, we may see, you know, industries or areas, again, implementing these types of measures. So, couple of thoughts on some things to, to make sure you know that you're considering. One is the Warren Act. So uh, th this is a federal law um, which requires 60 days notice of an employment loss generally. Um, it's only for larger employers with more than 100 employees, um, but it includes a layoff of more than six months. So again, temporary layoffs typically wouldn't apply, but a longer uh, time would trigger that 60-day notice obligation. Or, and there's other, it's important to note that workers who have their hours reduced by more than 50% for six months. So again, if you're implementing some sort of temporary reduction in hours, keep an eye on those timelines so that you, you, know, you, you can know, hey, we're about to get into Warn Act territory here. Uh, the, the triggers would be an employment loss of 50 or more employees at one site, and there's a 90-day window of measuring that or a broader employment loss across the company of 500 or more workers and 33% of the workforce. There are exceptions under this law for unforeseeable circumstances and natural disasters. Again, there's no precedent here, um, but clearly there's arguments that, that you know, these types of actions are unprecedented. They were obviously not for, uh, foreseeable, and so there may be exceptions that would apply. But again, even if the exception applies, the employer must provide notice as soon as practicable. So if you're looking at making these types of emergency uh, changes in terms of staffing levels, just make sure you're cognizant of when the Warren Act would be triggered. A couple of other thoughts on reductions in pay, because I know there's some companies looking at, at making temporary changes, uh, reductions in, in terms of staffing levels and pay. Uh, Non-exempt employees typically only get paid if they work. It's, that's a really a very straightforward situation. Uh, if, if you schedule them for less hours, they get paid you know, for less hours unless there's some sort of collective bargaining agreement that would come into play. Um, for exempt salaried employees, keep in mind we have the increased level of uh, the new minimum salary threshold right, that we have to comply with. Um, if, you know, 
I went through this in, in you know, the oil patch down here in, in Houston. We've, this has happened on, on a number of occasions where companies do across the board 10% you know, reductions in salary and, the, and those types of things, and that's perfectly lawful to do that. You just have to be careful that it doesn't fluctuate you know, back and forth in any way relative to that employee's amount of work. So you know, a temporary reduction in pay across the board of 10%, uh, and then later on that year, things get better, you know, bump, bump, people back up to their original salaries. Nothing wrong with that. But what you wouldn't want to see is, you know, multiple, you know, monthly changes to a salaried employee's salary level. That's going to that's going to raise a lot of questions as to whether that's legitimately uh, a salary basis test. Uh, for those for those listening on for those listening on the uh, on the webinar, uh, just know we've got a few more slides to get through. We will uh, likely be finished uh, in the next uh, 8 to 9 minutes at about 40 minutes after the hour. Thanks, Mike. Um, David, can I make one quick point about the exemption piece because I've got a lot sure. of clients talking about So one of the things clients are considering is cross-training, right? Having one employee learn another employee's job. And I just think it's important to remember if you are having an exempt employee doing, you know, learning a non-exempt or performing a non-duties, a non-exempt employee's uh, job, just make sure you don't cross the line, right, where they're now performing predominantly non-exempt duties and you're destroying the exemption completely. Yeah, I think that's an important point. I mean, the, the, the test speaks in terms of what their primary duty is. So again, a temporary duty that, that is different, I think, is not going to be a problem. But if you make fundamental changes or lengthy changes, I think that's a really good point, John. Um, you know, one of the last things I want to cover, because I know many of the folks on the line are not uh, unionized, but obviously everything that we said, in addition to, you know, Michelle's point, and I think the obvious point that local and state laws could affect the analysis, you have to think about, do we have a collective bargaining agreement or a duty to bargain about any or all of these things with the union? Uh, you know, f the National Labor Relations Act requires bargaining over, you know, uh, changes to terms and conditions of employment. Many of the things we've talked about are going to be, you know, at least on a temporary basis, you know, changes to the terms and conditions of employment. We've included in the materials a site to, you know, probably the most relevant case, uh, LRB decision, um, involving a uh, employer in uh, Louisiana that made a very quick emergency decision to shut down a facility and lay off the employees, and whether employers in that situation had a duty to first go negotiate with the union. And, 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 the, and the LRB said no. So there are certain emergency, uh, you know, exceptions, if you will, to that duty to to go bargain with the union. That being said, you, you know we, we don't have a good measuring stick of what the parameters of that are, and, and employers should be thinking about you know if they do take emergency measures, whether to follow up with the union and try to you know at least open up that dialogue after the fact to, to mitigate and guard against some sort of claim by the union that that the company is not you know following the law. Uh, and again, we're, typically that would involve. Uh, negotiation over the effects of the decision versus the actual decision. You know, you may say, as a, we have a right to take measures to protect our employees. We're not going to ask the union whether we can do these things, but we're going to talk to them about what impact that has. Uh, you know, you know how to how to address it, how long we're going to keep it in place, and, and those types of things. So, um, I want to go back to John, and, and we can kind of both walk through this. Is the, the last topic is just really what should employers be thinking about and planning about next? Right, and so like, you know, being respectful of everyone's time, and some of these are 
you know, regurgitations of the principles. But for those of you who have seen, we have a model template response plan that is going to go into these issues in a lot more detail. The one, the one issue that I would just like to, you know, spend a, a second on, which is these acts of God clauses, right? And that goes to the business disruption piece that David was talking about. But I think even broader than that, if you're, if you have consent decrees with the EEOC that you're going to be entering into, a lot of times when you settle OSHA cases, they have enhanced abatement that will say, I promise to train you know, all of these employees by X date, I think it's important before you agree to those, you know, particularly with the future contingencies, make sure that, you know, you have a, a, a clause here that's going to cover all of these unexpected and maybe now expected um, uh, situations so you're not going to violate these consent decrees or these stipulated settlements with the government or any other entity. Otherwise, David, I, you know, I'll turn it to you to, to finish it if there's something else you want to emphasize. Yeah, I mean, I think I just want to talk about a couple of points on this last slide, which is that, you know, right now we really haven't seen widespread, uh, and hopefully we never do, situations where people are, are coming to work sick. Um, you, you know, I think hopefully we never get there, but, but it's, it's worth thinking about um, who in your office is going to be the one policing that. You know, and I've talked with a lot of companies about, uh, you know, again, sort of along the lines of temperature checks, if this thing goes on for a while, and it might, um, it might not, but, but it might, you know, what is, you don't want your office to be, you know, like the nursing home situation where you have widespread impact in your office. So there needs to be, uh, you know, some thought to how are we going to police our policies it's one thing to send it out to employees and say, don't come to work sick, but you may need to take that up in intensity and enforcement at some point, depending upon your geography and as things change. Um, obviously, staying up to date with local recommendations from the CDC uh, and those types of things are, are really critical. And again, lastly, I, I think people are nervous. People are afraid. Your employees are going to be afraid and nervous. They're looking to the company, uh, among other people, to to let them know what the plan is and, and to keep them safe. And I think the more you communicate with employees about what the plan is and what they can do, and uh, I, I think it's going to help everyone and it's going to help you get people to work so that, you know, issues like I'm concerned about coming to work, you know, those things might hopefully fall away over the next few weeks. So um, go ahead, Mike. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dave and John and everybody else. Just a couple of closing points. As John mentioned a moment ago, uh, Cozen O'Connor did create a coronavirus task force. Uh, so many things are rapidly developing. Uh, and if you go to our website, Cozen.com, you will see uh, a lot of materials, contact information, as well as a model response plan that the task force has put together. So again, at Cozen.com, uh, you'll be able to get some real up-to-date information. Uh, information in addition to what you heard and saw today. Uh, for those of you who are interested and in into podcasts, our Employment Law Department does do a podcast called Employment Law Now. It is found on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Uh, it's also at employmentlawnow.com. Uh, if, again, you are interested in podcasts, remember the evaluation for this webinar will appear at the conclusion of this webinar, uh, so please take a moment to complete it and submit it. Also, remember to download the appropriate form for your self-reporting purposes and obviously allow up to two weeks to receive uh, your certificate of attendance. Lastly, as I mentioned before, if you submitted questions via the Q&A chat pod and it has not been answered yet, we will reach out to you offline. Uh, again, thank you so much for spending some time with us this afternoon. We hope that you found this useful uh, and have a great weekend.
I hope you found that useful and certainly informative. So much of this continues to change as we keep saying. We will keep you updated on this podcast. We also have a Cozen O'Connor Coronavirus Task Force. If you go to our website, cozen.com, and you click right at the top of it, you will see all kinds of written materials, alerts, uh, resources, all kinds of things that are interdisciplinary Uh, task force on the coronavirus uh, have been putting together to provide to our clients and to our contacts. That's all the time we have right now. Again, thank you as always for listening, and until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.